How many of you have ever tried to do the right thing before? How many of you have ever tried to do what it is that God put on your heart? How many of you have ever tried to be obedient to what you thought you were supposed to do, go where you were supposed to go, and ended up facing some opposition? Show of hands. How many of you have ever faced some opposition? Now, look at this. I mean, almost everybody's hand is up in the room. Opposition is something that we as people are familiar with. And my wife and I have faced some opposition, but I in particular remember some opposition that we faced in 2006. In 2006, my wife and I came to a realization that was a difficult realization. And the realization was this, we weren't very good with our money. Um, like really weren't good with our money. And because we weren't good with our money, it was like we'd balance the checkbook or, or we'd balance the books. And it was like we were always in the negative and it was a source of stress and it was a source of, of contention. And when stress around money happens, oftentimes in a marriage, it ended up being um, a stress upon our relationship and there was fighting. And I see some very humble husbands out there nodding their heads because they know what we tend to do is this. My spending is fine, but we need to look at your spending, right? Or then, then she's over here going, are you kidding me? My spending is fine. We need to look at your spending. And there was fighting and there was frustration and there was never enough money. And the truth is this, we got to a place where we realized that we need to humble ourselves and stop making excuses. That's a whole sermon right there. Stop blaming everybody else and everything else, all that stuff, ready? And just admit that we were not being obedient to God's plan for our finances. And that was a really hard place to get to, but we got to that place and we humbled ourselves and we sought some godly counsel and we took a financial peace university class and learned some biblical principles around our finances and started to put some of those principles into practice. And lo and behold, biblical principles when put into practice, it's this crazy thing they work. And so we, we, things started to shape up with our finances and, and we were taking some baby steps and we weren't out of the woods. We had a long way to go. But as you can tell, probably already within like five minutes, I'm easily excitable. So I was really excited. We were taking some steps and we were really far away from the finish line, but I was already celebrating what was happening. And so we were um, traveling together with some family and I just, I just couldn't help myself. Um, I just couldn't keep it in any longer like any preacher. I had to tell someone. So I was just so excited to talk to our family about what God had been doing in our finances. And um, I got a little excited and then I got a little overexcited and I went too far and I was just sharing stuff. And then I just, I blurted out, out, I shouted out, we're gonna be debt free, like totally debt free. And their response was almost the same as yours. (laughs) So you know what I did? I did what every good preacher does. When they don't get the response that they want, they, they circle back around and then they, they, they try again with a new method, okay? If you don't know that, just so you know, if you want the preacher to just keep going on to the next point, just give them something, okay? So I said, listen, maybe you didn't hear me right, but we are going to be debt free. Yeah. Except that's not how any of them responded. They all laughed. And I thought, this has got to be holy laughter. Holy Spirit just filled them. This is Holy Spirit laughter right now. They were laughing and laughing. And then one of my brothers said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. 
wow, thank you. That was so uplifting. Um, and then everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon. That's just not going to happen. Are you kidding me? You're the country that we live in. People have debt. You're not talking about your house too, are you? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, eventually that's where we were, we're working. For. That's never going to happen. People always have debt. And they just were piling it on. And it's like every time I tried to talk, they just kept coming back at me. And it was so discouraging. So discouraging. And I was, I started out kind of like fragilely excited and we were in the car driving home and my, my fragile excitement, the truth is this, it kind of turned into skepticism, right? I mean, I was fragilely excited. We started taking some steps, but then I started thinking to myself, maybe they're right. I mean, maybe this just is not going to work out. Maybe we are never going to get there. And I, I wonder if any of you have ever felt that way before. You know? And I, I realized something in that moment. And it's something that I'm sure all of you realize a lot faster than me. I'm a slow learner. And it's this. Obedience always faces opposition. Obedience always faces opposition. And the truth is this. I don't understand why followers of Jesus Christ, it always surprises us when we try to do the right thing and then we come up against opposition. We should know better. I mean, the first half of John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. So I don't want to wreck anyone's day. But there's an enemy who woke up this morning with one sole purpose, and that was to wreck your life. Period. That's it. Okay? But fine. Maybe you want to just brush past this one, but I I feel like Jesus usually gets like the trump card, right? As Christians, we're going to listen to what Jesus said. So this is what Jesus drops on us in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember that I told you a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will persecute me. Listen, Jesus is telling us, if you are obedient, if you do the right thing, you should expect opposition. What I've learned in life is this, that's fine. That's one thing to expect something to come, but it is a whole nother thing to press through that thing that comes. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Some of you are going like, hey, preacher, we're good. We know we should expect opposition and and you're there. But the question that I have for you is, are you pressing through the opposition or is the opposition pressing through you? And this morning, I want to look at a story found in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. And I walked through this room, and I prayed over all these seats, and I noticed there's a lot of Bibles in here. So if you didn't bring one, you could turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, grab that Bible in front of you. I think it would be beneficial. I'm going to reference back to this scripture a lot. But before I read this passage, it's important for me to give you some background, and here's the reason why. One, I do not want to make any assumptions that everybody in here is a follower of Jesus Christ, or two, that everybody in here understands this story. So instead of just jumping right in, I want to give you a little bit of background, okay? The nation of Israel, God said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to lead, guide, and direct you. If you would be obedient to the things that I have for you, you will be a blessed nation. Not only will you be a blessed nation, you will be a blessing to other people. Sounds great. Except the nation of Israel is a lot like us. 
They were disobedient people who did their own thing, who were prideful. When God asked them to do certain things, it was like, oh, okay, I'm good with that. But then when he asked them to do other things, it was like, ah, I don't know if I really want to do that. And in much the exact same way that my wife and mine's disobedience and selfishness and pride led us to a big mountain of mess in our finances, the nation of Israel's disobedience and pride and complete disregard for God led them into a big, giant mess. And that big giant mess was this, that God pulled his hand of favor from them, saying, listen, that's fine. If you want to go in this direction, that's fine, but I'm not walking in that direction with you. This is the direction that I want you to go. And when he pulled that hand of favor, an outside nation came in, destroyed their temple, destroyed their walls, killed people, exiled people, drew people out. And what the nation of Israel was left with was a big, giant mess. And my experience in life is this, is that oftentimes when we are confronted with our own mess, our first response is not to admit our own guilt, is to not take a look within ourselves. Usually our first response is to lament and woe is me and why is my life so hard and blame everybody else. But like I had to get to that place, Somewhere along the way, the nation of Israel had to. And before I read the passage in Nehemiah 4, I want to read out of Nehemiah chapter 1. And this is in the second half, the second half of verse 6. And I want you to see Nehemiah's response. He says, I confess, the second half of verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant. And he continues to go on in prayer. But what I want you to notice is this. Nehemiah is not casting blame on anyone else. And I want you to notice this one. Please, please, please notice this one. He is a leader. He is not saying, Lord, please forgive my people. Please forgive them. He's saying, please forgive us. He has included himself in this. He says, we have acted very wickedly. He takes some ownership. He takes some ownership. And God loves humility. God loves a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God loves it when we as his people come to him and say, listen, I messed up. I know I didn't do right. I'm coming back to you. He's always waiting. Yes, come. Thank you. And so God pours his favor out upon Nehemiah. He pours his favor out upon Nehemiah. He gives him favor in the eyes of a foreign king. And a foreign king says, listen, that's fine. You want to go back to your homeland and rebuild the walls? Sure, go ahead. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to give you supplies to help you rebuild those walls. So God gives favor. And he goes back and he rallies the troops and they begin to rebuild the wall. And they have a complete mess on their hands, just like my wife and mine's finances. But baby step, by faithful baby step, by faithful baby step, the wall starts to get rebuilt. And excitement starts to grow. I mean, they're seeing the results of their obedience. But obedience always faces opposition. So that's where we find ourselves here. 
Nehemiah 4, verse 1, follow along with me. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stone. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of the Jerusalem wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. All right, this is a picture of opposition. And one of the first things that I want to point out to you in this is that most frequently, the most frequent area of opposition, the most frequent attack comes on us as people first. On us as people first. And I want you to notice that here in this passage, in the second half of verse two, it says, those feeble Jews, they are making claims about those people. They next attack their work, but the very first thing that they attack is them as people. And listen, what you believe about you determines a lot of how you are going to live this day out. And our enemy knows that. The war is won and it's fought up here in our mind with our beliefs, what we believe. That's why I shared this in first service. I read this passage and it changed me so much that it has changed the pattern of prayer with my children. I pray, I have three kids, I pray over my children every single night, and one of the prayers that I pray over my children at night, every single night, is this. Lord, please help my children to believe the truth about who you say you are, the one true God, and help them to believe the truth about who you say they are, your children, that's where their value and their worth come from. I cannot think, I cannot think of a more difficult place or a place where you will face more opposition if you live in this country in your life than in middle school, high school, or a secular college. I cannot think of one place. I cannot think of one place. And the truth is this, 
You, I, we are constantly attacked, our character and who we are. We're constantly told, listen, if you don't perform enough, then you aren't good enough. If you don't get good enough grades, if you don't do as well at work, if you haven't had that promotion in time, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. That's what the enemy is always trying to do. He's always trying to attack how you see yourself. But what God says about you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you are a son or a daughter of the king. And that is where your value and your worth comes from. Not from anything that you will ever do, but from who you belong to. And that is what the enemy is attacking. And so they, they regroup and they pray. They regroup and they pray. And then they go back in. And there's some of you in this room who are those kinds of people. Somebody says you can't do something you know exactly who you are. I know, I can see, I can see some of you right now. Somebody says you can't do something and you're like, oh, you better, now I'm gonna do something. Now I'm not only gonna do what you told me I can't do, I'm gonna do it two times, three times, four times. Oh, I'm gonna do that something you tell me I can't do. And you kind of sense that spirit in the Israelites here. Look at this, look at what it says in verse six. So we built the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. They said, listen, we're going to come up against opposition. People are going to say things about us. People are going to say things about our work. You know, we're going to show them. We're just going to work a little harder. And there are some of you in this room that that has been your mentality when you come up against opposition. You've got a strong resolve in your spirit. You say, listen, if I come up against opposition, if somebody tells me I'm not going to do something, I'm just going to press through. I'm going to push through opposition, and I'm going to do it. And maybe this is a rude thing to do as a guest preacher, but I'm going to do it anyway. Somebody needs to tell you in love. That's just not the case. You're fooling yourself. You really honestly are fooling yourself if you think that your own will and resolve are strong enough to get you through all of the opposition that you are going to face. Because I can tell you this, your opposition, it's not gonna give up and we're gonna see that here in just a minute in this passage. So the opposition gets even more angry, comes back again. But all of us eventually reach a breaking point and that's what happens here with the nation of Israel. Verse 10 tells us that, that the laborers are giving out. The people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. There's two things. One, the physical strength is giving out. That's probably less concerning to Nehemiah in this moment. I mean, he can give somebody a break. It's what they say next. It says this. I want you to catch this definitive statement. There is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. He doesn't, the people don't come and say, listen, dude, this was a great plan. It was working really well for a while. It's not looking good. Maybe we need to regroup. Um, he, he doesn't say, the people aren't saying, I don't think this is going to work out. It is a definitive statement. They have already lost in their mind. They say, listen, we cannot. In just a few short verses, we've got people when faced with opposition says, that's it, forget it. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna work with all my heart. I'm gonna show these people. Now next, you've got a group of people when faced with opposition again, coming and saying, it's just not gonna work. And this is a very fragile moment. Nehemiah realizes that this is a make or break moment. And I wonder, is there somebody in this room who is in the midst of a make or break moment right now? You are at that place where you know what it is that God wants from you, and you've been faithfully going in that direction, but you continue to face opposition, and that opposition won't go away. And what Nehemiah understood is the same thing that I think we need to understand this morning, and I, I wish that I could tell you something different. I really do. 
I wish that I could tell you this morning that if you continue to just be faithful and obedient to the Lord, that your opposition will eventually just go away or they'll get tired of bothering you. But the truth is this, your opposition won't. I mean, it, it might take on a different form and it might look different, but I'm telling you, it's not gonna go away. Nehemiah doesn't pull the people aside and say, well, you know what, if we just keep working hard enough, they'll eventually go away. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah doesn't address any external circumstances at all. He addresses the heart of the people. And I want you to notice what Nehemiah says. He calls them to remember in this morning, there are two things that I want to encourage someone in this room to remember. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. First thing he says is this, remember the Lord. And the first thing that I want to tell somebody in this room right now is you need to remember who's fighting for you. You're really clear about who's fighting against you. And I'm afraid that maybe some of us have become so obsessed with our enemy that we've forgotten about our ally. And, and And I think we see this in the passage here. Look up a little bit further. There's a really unique thing that happens in verse 12. I'm always fascinated when they give numbers in the Bible. I think there's got to be a reason for it, right? I mean, somebody must have counted. They must have put the number in there. They're not just like throwing numbers out. Look at what verse 10 says. The Jews who lived, uh, yep, uh, verse 10, sorry. I lost my side. 12. 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. They will attack us. Here's here's the key in there, ready? 10 times over. They just kept coming and 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 they kept talking to Nehemiah about their opposition and about their opposition and about their opposition and about their opposition and about their opposition. And And there's some of you in this room who have said the name of your opposition more than the name of Jesus Christ in your struggle. You have addressed and you have acknowledged and you have given power to the name of your opposition more than you have the name of God, more than you have the name of Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah is saying, listen, I get it. I'm not being naive and I hope you feel I'm not being trite nor naive either. I suspect that some of you are facing very real opposition. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying that your adversary or the people that are coming up against you are weak or small. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying they're weak or they're small in light of the God that you serve. And that is what Nehemiah is saying in this moment. He's saying, guys, I hear it. You keep talking to me and you keep telling me all the stuff, but would you remember the Lord? I mean, would you remember the Lord who gave me favor to come back and help lead this? Would you remember the Lord who gave us favor and gave us the materials to rebuild this wall? Do we need to go back a little bit further? Do we need to remember our ancestors who the Lord led out of captivity through 10 miraculous plagues? Do we need to remember that it was our God that parted the Red Sea? Do we need to remember that it was our God that rained down bread from heaven? Do we remember that it was our God who brought water from a rock? Do we we remember that it was our God who kept our people's clothes from not wearing out for 40 years? I would like to know where I can buy clothes like that, by the way. He's saying, listen, I know you keep talking about your enemy, but you need to remember who is fighting for you. And I want to read some scriptures over you right now. 
some scriptures that remind us who is fighting for us. And, and if you're taking notes this morning, maybe some of you need to just write these scripture references down. You won't be able to write the whole scripture down. You need to write these scripture references down and you need to go back home and you need to write them out and you need to put them somewhere. And when you begin to face opposition, when somebody comes up against you and when things get difficult, you need to pull these scriptures out and you need to read them and remind yourself again of who is fighting for you. Romans 8, 31 says this, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for us, who could be against us? Let's, let's look at the next scripture. It says this, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The scriptures tell us that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. I am not doubting that your opposition doesn't have some of this, maybe doesn't have some power, doesn't maybe have some influence, doesn't maybe have some control. And some, but listen, not compared to the same God who raises people from the dead. And that lives inside of you. It lives inside of me. The next passage. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And the next passage is this. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. God is not asking for you to have a bunch of activity in this. He's saying, listen, wait on me. Let me fight for you. That's the first thing that Nehemiah calls the people to remember. And the second thing that he calls the people to remember is this. First, remember who's fighting for you. The second, remember who you are fighting for. Remember who you are fighting for. He says that in the second half of verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome that, uh, and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters. But he does something strategic to kind of help the people remember that. If you go back up to verse 13, it says, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears, as if to indicate maybe they had not been posted in that way before. But this time he says, listen, I get the sense that we're getting ready to go into battle. I get the sense that our opposition is not going to back down. So what he does is he he gathers moms and dads and kids and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. And he says, I want you to all work together. Now, why is he doing that? This is the reason I think he's doing that. And and I I think that the latter verse that I read helps to indicate this. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to come clean, okay? I like honesty. I am at my weakest and most cowardly when I am doing things for myself. I am the most brave when I am doing things for other people. You know, you got me here working on a wall and I'm working beside, I don't even know some of your names right there. I'm sure you love Jesus. I love you. You're working on a wall next to me and there's some people coming down on me with a sword and a shield and, and I got like a hammer And I'm thinking, this is not good. And I look at you, and I look at you on my right and my left, and I say, peace be with you. And I run. I hope the Lord protects you. You put my wife, my three kids, my mom, my dad, just by default, honestly, I'm just a little braver in that moment. I mean, to turn tail and run means to turn tail and run on my own family. And he situates the people around each other. 
which man, I wish I could spend a whole sermon on this right here and the value and the importance of the church, big C church, and what is happening in this room right now, being surrounded by brothers and sisters. There's a lot of people I hear all the time, it's just me and Jesus. That is not even biblical. Not even biblical. We're built for community. We need each other. And it is at the very heart of what the gospel is, is it not? What does Jesus say the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. At the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to value the life and the needs of other people above your own. It is fighting for other people. It is saying, I don't think that I can do it for me, but I think I can do it for you. And I'm going to tell you this right now, that was one of the greatest motivators for my wife and I to get our finances on track. Uh, Dave Ramsey describes people in two different ways. If you've ever taken Financial Peace University, free spirits and nerds. Nerds like the budgets and the numbers and everything to be in order. Yeah, I'm a free spirit all the way, baby. Like, I'm a free spirit all the way. And my wife is like hardcore, nerd, budget, keep everything in order. And I'm like, free spirit, man, I, can't, I cannot be shackled down. The Lord might be just speaking to me and I might need to stop by Speedway and get myself one of those 99 cent speedy freezes. She says, that is not the Lord speaking to you, that is the enemy. The Lord spoke to us when we budgeted this past week. I rebuke you, you will not stop by and get that speedy freeze. She should be up here preaching right now, I'll tell you that. I did not like living under a budget. I still struggle with it some. Every time I thought about getting rid of the process, I thought about it at the time, we only had two, I thought about my two small kids. And I thought about the fact that, you know what, I just didn't want to raise kids in a home where they constantly were watching their mom and dad fight and bicker about money. I didn't, I didn't want to raise kids in a home where we were constantly talking about us and our needs and our finances and how we couldn't, couldn't make it. I wanted to get my financial house in order so that my kids would be raised in a home where we were constantly talking about how do we give our stuff away and God's blessed us so much. How do we help other people? And in those moments when I wanted to stop for my speedy freeze or, or waste my money on something else, I just kept thinking to myself, first and foremost, you, you got to do it because it's the right thing to do. It's obedience. But second off, do it for your kids. Build a legacy for your kids. And uh, it's kind of the way that I feel about ministry moving forward. Uh, I turned 40 this past year. And uh, I, I started out at our church as a lead pastor when I was 28 years old. And uh, now it's weird. We have interns that are 20 years younger than me. I make movie references sometimes on a Sunday morning and I get a lot of blank stares from... Um, and... Uh, Man, there were some people that took um, some risks on me. Everybody else was more qualified than me that our church hired. Everybody else was more qualified. And uh, I made some pretty big messes early on. But there were a lot of people that stood there and they loved me and they walked with me. So I've gotten to this place in my ministry. Now I'm, I'm 40 years old and I've seen a few things and I've, I've done a few things in ministry and 
we continue to have a lot of interns and a lot of young people and a lot of college students and a lot of even high school students serving in some pretty significant capacities within the church. Um, because I, I've come to realize that like one of the greatest teachers is doing something. And I mean no disrespect by what I'm about to say here this the right way, but young people make messes. And that was not meant to be, I, I just told you, I made a boatload of messes. It's easier to just go get somebody that's older and they know the ropes and all the stuff that they're supposed to do. But I realized that somebody took a chance on me. And so we've started to face some opposition. Because sometimes I get a knock on the door in my office and say, this happened or that mess is there or that mess is there. And it feels like the opposition coming saying like, listen, let's just give the positions to people who are gonna create Less mess. Who can I give it to that it's gonna make less knocks on my door than more? But then I remember that somebody fought for me. So I I showed this in first service. I've made a decision moving forward in my life. Whatever it is, whether it's at church or anywhere else, I'm 40, I've told, I told people in the first service this, my life, my, my church has heard me say this so many times, it's annoying to them. My life, everything from here on out is a cherry on top, everything. Man, I could die today, I know where I'm going. I got an amazing wife, I got three amazing kids, everybody's healthy, God has blessed me with an amazing family, I get to serve an amazing people in ministry, I've got amazing friends, literally, it's all a cherry on top from here on out, so what I decided is this, I don't wanna fight for myself anymore, and I don't wanna get what I I want anymore, I just wanna fight for other people. And it's hard to get to the place that you wanna go, so this is what I decided I'm gonna start doing. I want this to be the picture that everyone has of me in ministry, And when those young people or the people who are facing opposition are coming up against that wall that's right there and they're not sure how they're gonna get over it, I wanna be the first one to get down on my hands and knees and go, go ahead, step up. If this will help you get over, go ahead. And that is a picture of what it means to fight for other people. And I wish I could tell you this morning that your opposition will just go away. And I wish I could tell you that if we just prayed and if we had long enough prayer services that they would go away. I don't think it's about changing our circumstances as much as it is about changing our focus. Right. That's right. Remembering who's fighting for us and remember who we should be fighting for. And the last thing I want to say in closing is this. Look at verse 15. I think this is a peculiar verse says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. It just is so matter of fact. It seems so bizarre to me. I mean, the whole time they're complaining and 10 times over and we cannot do it and it's not gonna work and the whole situation is fragile. And then Nehemiah says, remember these two things. And then verse 15, all of a sudden it's like, ah, just everybody went back to work. This feels so weird to me. And what it reminds me of is this. In this passage here, 
Some like angel didn't descend down and like stand with swords in front of all the people and say, we got you, keep building. I mean, there wasn't this like miraculous moment. And, and sometimes God moves in those ways. And I pray for some of you that God would move in a miraculous way, that he would literally move your opponent off center so that you could keep going. I pray. And, and he does that sometimes. But you know what sometimes he does? Sometimes he doesn't move our opponent. Sometimes he moves inside of us. Okay. So that we could get back up and just keep going. And I've got to believe that in a room this size, there are some of you that are facing immense persecution and pushback. You are trying to make the right choice. You are trying to be obedient to the will and the way of God. Yet at every turn, it seems like somebody is opposing you. At every turn, it seems like somebody is questioning you or your motives. They're saying things about you and your character. And like me driving home, you're on the verge of giving in. But this morning, I, I want to say to somebody in this room, remember who's fighting for you. That if he calls you to it, he will see you through it. And remember who you're fighting for.